Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. This episode contains discussion of suicide and self-harm. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know is struggling, we urge you to contact a trusted individual or call the National Suicide Hotline, even anonymously, at 800-273-8255. One more time, that's 800-273-8255. Today we are examining the death of James D. Baker II. In 2013, he was living just outside of Smyrna, Delaware with his wife of 21 years and his two young daughters. James was just 42 and had worked at the DuPont Experimental Station as an environmental specialist for 22 years. In his free time, he was a competitive weightlifter. While he was described as a caring husband and father, and by most accounts a good co-worker, he was the kind of weightlifter that dabbled in steroids. Mm. He and a friend bought some from China off the internet in June of 2013, and then split the bottles. He had a collection of both steroid pills and injectable steroids with hypodermic needles, which he kept in a locked toolbox in his and his wife's bedroom. All right. On September 16th of 2013, James's wife, Jamie, found James collapsed in their bedroom and called 911. When first responders arrived, James was already dead. Mm. His body was transported from the family home to the morgue. At autopsy, the medical examiner found crystals in James's kidneys, indicative of exposure, not to steroids of any kind, but to ethylene glycol. Hmm. During the investigation, James's steroids were also collected and tested, and the two bottles of injectable steroids were also found to contain ethylene glycol. So what is ethylene glycol? Ethylene glycol is the main component in antifreeze. Okay, okay. The friend James had split the steroids with said that the bottles had definitely not been tampered with when they received them because they always checked for that sort of Mm, thing. mm -hmm. And, I mean, the friend was probably also taking his portion at home sure. mm-hmm. and was not experiencing any sort of ethylene glycol symptoms. So the death was ruled a homicide, and now the question was, who killed him? All right, let's figure this out. I feel like the police had their suspicions right away. Mm-hmm. Because within months, on March thirteenth, two 2014, Jamie Baker, his wife, was arrested on the charge of first-degree murder and possession of a deadly weapon during a felony. Ooh, Direct, yeah. Like, what was, that was a separate charge? I guess. I could not figure out what deadly weapon she had. Maybe it was that she committed a felony and also, like, had possession of a gun. Oh, that may, okay. I but, really have no idea, though. I couldn't figure that one out. But this was a separate incident than what was going on with her husband? I, I don't know. I think, I think it might have been related, but I don't know. I couldn't mm-hmm. figure it out. So I don't think okay. that she committed an additional felony. I think Mm. that they were just trying to get additional charges, maybe. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So, during questioning, Jamie confessed to using a hypodermic needle to adulterate the steroids with antifreeze from a container in the garage. So, she would pull up the antifreeze in the hypodermic needle, she would puncture the septum of the steroids, and then inject the antifreeze (sighs) in. And since there were already punctures in the top of the steroid cap... That didn't look suspicious. No, he had no idea. James had no idea. 
So he was injecting himself with antifreeze unknowingly. Yes. Yeah. Thinking about that just makes my skin crawl. Like, it's just, it's super insidious. And ethylene glycol is colorless. Antifreeze isn't. I mean, everybody has seen the bright green antifreeze. Sure. It's such a small bottle of steroids that the small amount of antifreeze that she put in it probably didn't change the color enough, especially if it was in glass. You know how when you look through glass, it's kind of blue, green. Or if it was a darker color or, and I mean, when he's going to inject his steroids, he's probably not going like, looking at it, doing the once over, he's probably like, all right, I got to do this. So I'm going to make it quick and I'm going to get my needle and do the thing. So he had no idea. So why would somebody want to inject themselves with steroids in the first place? If you're going to do steroids, what's the advantage of injecting them versus Mm -hmm. taking them in a pill? I don't know a lot about this. I don't do steroids. (laughs) But is there advantages over one over the the other? Yeah, there are certain advantages. Both are dangerous. Neither version is safe, and I'll say that first of all. Obviously, we're talking about the anabolic steroids that you use when you're trying to boost your testosterone. Mm. And those are different than the steroids you might take otherwise. I was trying to look up injectable steroids, and Mm -hmm. people take steroids for, like, acne. And so that's not what we're talking about. Right. Both versions of anabolic steroids are not safe. Artificially increasing your testosterone and not having supervision from a doctor, say somebody who's like going on tea, that's different. Mm -hmm. I did think originally that injecting would be more dangerous than taking a pill form. Maybe more potent, but more dangerous. Mm -hmm. But it's actually a little bit safer, which I'm not advocating for either, but it is a little bit safer if you practice proper needle hygiene. Okay. And that's because... Since the pills are an oral route of administration, they go through hepatic metabolism, which means they pass through the liver. And when they pass through the liver, it puts strain on the liver, for one, to filter all that out. But it Mm -hmm. also makes the steroids less potent. Mm. And so when you're injecting it and you're bypassing hepatic metabolism, you reach that peak of steroids that you need to become effective. Sure. With fewer doses. And so the people who take oral steroids are putting more strain on their liver and they might have to take more doses of that steroid to reach the same level and stay there than somebody Mm. who's injecting steroids. So it's more cost effective. Mm -hmm. You get the desired results quicker. Mm -hmm. Not as hard on your body. Okay. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I mean, again, doesn't, not a great idea to do steroids, but if somebody's (laughs) wanting to do that, I can see why that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Jamie was arrested after this confession. She was held without bail in the Baylor Women's Correctional Institute until 2017, so for three years, until she had her first court appearance and pled guilty to second-degree murder, which has a mandatory minimum sentence of 15 years. So at this point, she's definitely getting at least 15 years. Okay. On March 20th of 2017, she spoke on her own behalf. And she said that she was not in the right state of mind and that she was in a terrifying situation with an abusive man. And so that's allegedly why she chose to kill him. However, her daughters painted a different picture of the life in the home and even asked the court to give their mother a life sentence for murdering their father. Oh, wow. They they said that the day before James died, he was very ill and Jamie refused to call 911 or get him any medical attention even though the daughters were asking her to. Holy shit. That's obviously pretty suspect. Like, dad doesn't feel so good. Can we get him some help, please? Yeah. (laughs) No, we're not going to do that. Sorry. The daughters never described 
fearing their father or suffering from abuse, which, like, I'm not going to say that doesn't mean that the mother wasn't being abused because, you know, people can take things out on specific individuals. Mm -hmm. But they also said that they thought that Jamie was negligent regarding their health. So that Jamie was a negligent mother regarding their health. Okay. And that their parents actually fought about that a lot. And Jamie's attorney described the couple as both having substance abuse problems, having limited finances, and having a stressful relationship. But the daughters said that the limited finances were also actually Jamie's fault because she had problems with alcohol and she didn't work. Oh. And James would often fight with her about where is the money going. I mean, that's going to put a strain on any relationship. Money Mm -hmm. problems, substance abuse problems abuse if it happened or not but Mm -hmm. well and the daughters describe jamie as the one being physically violent towards james and emotionally abusive towards her daughters after the death of their father like saying that they should get over it things like that do we know how old the the children were when this happened i think they were about i think maybe the oldest one was about 12 okay So old enough to be cognizant of what's going on um, and to pick up on these things and they're still living at home. They're not grown children out of the home. So were there any police records or accounts that supported that Jamie was domestically violent in this situation? As far as I can tell, there was no intervention made on anybody's account. So there wasn't any intervention because Jamie was being violent. There wasn't any intervention because James was. I couldn't find any records. Mm. Everyone who testified said that James was a great guy, except for one coworker who said he was so afraid of James that he kept something to protect him on his desk, which, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a drastically different account than everybody else is giving. And that makes you wonder, you know. Sure. I I need something at my desk to protect me from my coworker. Like, I'm going to hit you with my red swing line if you come at me. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was really weird. And like, I don't know. And I mean, again, he was on steroids you know and so people can be kind of yeah on steroids but you would think that that would be seen across the board it could be that this one guy just like had issue with him over one instance or something like that you know sure i mean we all have that one person that yeah we got like that oh kayla she was bad news bears even though you're one of the coolest (laughs) people i know like, we all have got that one person out there that if the news yes. interviews them, we're not going to be in a great light. So yeah. they found that one guy. They, they found did. that one guy. Yeah. And again, the daughters indicated that there was no abuse on on James's behalf, but there was on Jamie's behalf. So. Okay. And, okay. you know, it could have been more psychological abuse that even though, like, mm-hmm. as we've said, the daughter, daughters could have been cognizant of physical abuse, maybe. Maybe they weren't able to perceive psychological abuse. Maybe it was behind closed doors, you know, that kind of thing. But it never came up in court. That never came up in court. And I think it is interesting that Jamie only decided to talk about this alleged abuse during during her speaking on behalf of herself in court. And she didn't make any mention of it during her confession, which seemed to have been a pretty Mm. willing confession after they're like, hey, there's antifreeze in the steroids and we know that there are. So I don't know, maybe she maybe she came up with the story as a reduced sentence. I have no idea. Okay. Okay. Uh, either way, Jamie was found guilty and sentenced to 40 years in prison. Oof. Yeah. So she'll be 87 when she gets out. 
she was forced to pay $5,000 in restitution and attend an anger management course along with other mental health stipulations. So, and what this anger management, was this something that she would have to do while she was in prison? Or is this like when you get out at 84, part of your probate is going to be to do anger management? You know, it didn't say, but I'm really hoping that it's something that they do in prison. Because what's the That's point? That's what I would hope. Yeah. You know? Like yeah. waiting till she's 84 to handle her unresolved anger. So that makes sense. How does ethylene glycol or antifreeze, how does it kill someone? Ethylene glycol is a derivative of alcohol, and it acts on the central nervous system in a similar way to exhibit depressive effects. Okay. Mostly, though, it's the metabolites that are dangerous. So upon passage through the liver, ethylene glycol becomes glycoaldehyde, glycolate, glyoxalate, and oxalic acid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These metabolites inhibit oxidative phosphorylation and cellular respiration, as well as glucose and serotonin metabolism, protein synthesis, DNA replication, and ribosomal RNA formation, which is just a lot of different ways of saying it seriously fucks with you. Okay. Let me, let's try to break it down for the lay people <laughs> a little bit. We got pretty sciencey there, Miss Chemistry Masters. So metabolites are, after your body does a process, those are mm-hmm. the byproducts of that process? Essentially. So when something passes through the liver, Our liver's whole role in the body is to take xenobiotics, essentially, so foreign substances, Mm -hmm. and break them up so that they become more hydrophilic, so that they'll like water more, and they will be excreted through our urine. Okay. That's the whole point of the liver. Okay. And so, when it passes through the liver, it breaks up things so that they will become hydrophilic, and in doing so, it creates metabolites. So it goes in as ethylene glycol and comes out as all these different things that it's broken Got up it. Into. And so mm-hmm. when it comes at that's when it becomes the dangerous mm-hmm. substance, and then it's preventing cellular respiration. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that sounds terrifying, per <laughs> usual. So what, what is the phosphorylization? Phosphorylation? Phosphorylation, yes. Okay, what is that? Phosphorylation is when you add a phosphoryl group, which is a group containing phosphorus and oxygen. Okay. Oxidative phosphorylation is how ATP is formed in the mitochondria of a cell by transferring electrons. And ATP, Mm -hmm. if you remember from our arsenic episode, is the currency of energy in the body. ATP Mm -hmm. is used to make DNA, RNA, and it's used to exchange phosphorus in different processes in the body. So this is another one that fucks with that phosphorus exchange. Okay, got it. And I I should say that even though he was injecting in order to overcome the hepatic metabolism, it will still go through your, you know, it'll still be metabolized in your body in different ways. And so... In some way. Yeah, yeah, slightly, like not as much, not as much as an oral route of administration, but your blood is still circulating, you know, through your liver. So it's not like you avoid it completely. Question, Mm -hmm. if he had been taking it in the pill form, and let's Mm -hmm. say she put some, I don't know what steroid pills are like, but if she (laughs) put some antifreeze in the gel caps, would that have been more toxic to him because it's metabolized in the liver more? Hmm. You know, I don't know. I did try to go find information on this, but this is such a weird crime that there's yeah. not a whole lot of instances of people looking Who at doing? what injecting ethylene glycol looks like. Right, because how, how many times has that happened? How often is this happening? We don't have a lot of data on it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Interesting. When that happens and you have ingested the ethylene glycol, acute exposure can have three stages. There's central nervous system depression, cardiopulmonary toxicity, and renal toxicity. Okay. 30 minutes to 12 hours after ingestion, central nervous system depression can set in with seizures, coma, cerebral edema, nausea, and vomiting. At 12 to 24 hours, cardiopulmonary toxicity sets in and presents as tachycardia, hypertension, or hypotension, pulmonary edema, pneumonitis, congestive heart failure, and shock. At 24 to 72 hours after exposure, renal toxicity is established due to acidosis and a deposit of calcium oxalate crystals in the kidneys. These crystals can also build up in the meninges, the blood vessel walls, the lungs, and the myocardium, and they are painful because as these crystals build up, they're kind of like kidney stones, and they actually start to cut through the tissues that they collect in. Oh my god. Yeah, it's really painful. It's super painful. And these crystals are what they found in his kidneys that were indicative of ethylene glycol exposure. Wow. And so he was feeling all of that before. Wow. And that, oh my, that's terrible. Yeah. And it's not like you necessarily go through all of these, like, in order. Some people might skip them. And because he was getting, like, a little bit at a time, maybe he wasn't getting the central nervous system depression. Like, right away. Yeah, I don't think that he was. I think, I mean, because he was doing this for three months. And so it could be that she had poisoned them as soon as he got them and had already taken the first dose so that she could puncture after that initial dose Mm. and the needle wouldn't be seen. Mm -hmm. So his wasn't so much acute as it was chronic. And so he probably, towards the end, was experiencing maybe some heart failure if the crystals were building up in the myocardium. He might have been experiencing nausea and vomiting towards the end. I don't know what he was experiencing the day before, but it was bad enough that the daughter was like, we should get him medical attention. We need to get him to, right. I mean, it was bad enough to where a young child is like, uh, my dad's not okay. And what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So with the crystals, is there any other way of testing for ethylene glycol poisoning other than the crystals? Yes. Okay. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah, you, it's not just a postmortem thing where they look at your kidneys and they're like, oh, that's what it was. Right, and they're like, oh, that's it. Yeah, like you don't, okay, tell me. So if the person is still alive, they can actually go to the hospital and their blood can be tested. And this can all ha- actually, you can do this, I shouldn't say antemortem. You can do this while you're still alive or you can do it postmortem. <laughs> I like antemortem. Like, <laughs> let's, let's just start referring to people as like being dead <laughs> is where you're like at and so everything else is anti-mortem i i'm pro anti-mortem that's how i'm gonna describe my life now this is my anti-mortem stage yeah (laughs) that's very like morticia adams of you (laughs) thank you thank you okay Okay, so when they're still alive, they can test in the same way as postmortem, so the same way that we did when I was working at the coroner's office. They can look for ethanol in the body, because if you're exhibiting signs of ethanol intoxication, but you have, you know, not enough ethanol in your body that it matches, then Mm. they might be like, oh, it's a different alcohol intoxication. Okay. And then they can also look for acetone the same way, which was an indication of potential diabetes. And so you can look for all of these volatile compounds. And in the blood and the urine, then they can do that before you die as well. Okay. You can also test the blood 
serum for increased BUN and creatinine, which is a sign of kidney failure. So these are just outputs of the body mm -hmm. that can indicate kidney failure. And you can do that antemortem or postmortem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, my, this is totally not podcast related, but Nugget, when he went to the vet, he uh -huh. had really high levels of creatinine, like double mm -hmm. what the vet wanted to see. And that's what she said. It could either mean that he had a kidney infection that he was just getting over or early onset kidney disease. Yeah. So I've heard of cre this creatinine before. I feel so yes. in the know and <laughs> right now. You should. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, friend. So I'm guessing that inject injecting antifreeze is not something that is common. People aren't doing it all the time. No. <laughs> uh, it sounds like a pretty unique case, but what about poisoning with antifreeze in general? How common is that? I wouldn't say that it's common just because poisoning in general isn't common, but I guess among poisons, it is fairly common just because it's accessible. So kind of like how sodium chloride, like not super common, it's just accessible. Pretty much everybody has access to this. Mm -hmm. A report released in 2015 analyzed cases in the National Poison Data System for ethylene glycol exposures between 2006 and 2013. And this system is connected to the poison hotline, right? Mm -hmm. And they found that of the 45,097 cases that called in in that time frame, 7,070 were intentional, 154 resulted in death. Of these, 144 were intentional deaths. Wow. So that's roughly 5,637 exposures a year and 19 deaths per year. Now, I would say that this is likely because most of the cases weren't intentional and they were able to get medical mm. attention in time before death occurred. Mm -hmm. We should compare this to the overall 2,099,751 deaths human poison exposures that were reported just in mm. 2018 to the poison control hotline. Mm. And that means that ethylene glycol exposures only accounts for about 0.2% of annual poison exposure cases. Oh, wow. So it's not, not as common mm -mm. as we might think. Cause I mean, you know that it's toxic, but mm -hmm. yeah, that's a, that's, I mean, that's a super small percentage, yeah. less than 1%. For even how accessible it is. It's, yeah. It's a very small percentage. And we should compare that to the most common kind of case, which is prescription and non-prescription pain reliever mm. exposure, which comes in at 11.2% of all cases. So even the most common thing comes in as a, as a, it's fraction. a fraction of the overall pie, right? Yeah. And is that, are we talking painkillers like opiates and like mm. non-prescription as far as people taking too much Tylenol? Both. And I think a lot of both of those are kids because their ability to withstand Tylenol even is mm. pretty low. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot, I can speak from experience on this too, there's a lot of opiate exposures in children where maybe grandma is shaking and she tries to get her pills out, one falls on the floor and she doesn't oh, catch it, mm -hmm. and a toddler will come and take it. Yeah, it's sad. It that sucks. is sad. That is sad. So that's probably a lot of that exposure. Okay. I don't think it's mostly people who are like, oh no, can you take 12 Tylenol in a day and then calling the poison control hotline, you know? So, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Okay. As a household and automotive hazard, it does also present a practical danger, especially when considering animal and pediatric exposures. You can spill a little bit on the ground. That same toddler might put their hand in it, mm. put their hand because toddlers like put their hands in their mouths. Although I should also say, caveat, that pediatric exposures are not actually the majority either. So it is a practical concern, but the majority of exposures is people over 20 years old. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. 
Well, can we talk more about intentional versus accidental versus suicidal versus homicidal? Sure. Sure, of course. Thanks, friend. Yeah. <laughs> let's get into the dark stuff. <laughs> yeah, let's let's go there. Everybody buckle up. We're going to not fun times. Take me there. You drive this car. Okay. So there were 7,070 intentional poisonings in that time frame, and the report didn't break down homicidal versus suicidal, mm. but I would think that the intentional ones are mostly suicidal in mm. nature. We keep breaking this down. Poisonings aren't common. Ethylene glycol poisoning isn't common. Actually dying from it isn't super common. Most poisonings that are intentional are suicidal in nature. Suicide is just it's more common than I think most people realize that it is. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Along with suicide being more common than people might think it is, suicidal poisoning has actually been on the rise over the last couple of years, especially among teenagers. It's the leading type of suicide attempt among teenagers in the United States. It doubled from 40,000 attempts in 2000 to 80,000 attempts in 2018. Holy shit. And it is the third leading cause of death by suicide in the United States, following deaths by firearms and suffocation. Holy shit. But this is lumping all suicidal poisonings together. So whether yes. it be from antifreeze, mm -hmm. taking too much Tylenol, and other... So that's lumping all of the poisonings together, right? Yes. Got yes. it. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's really sad. It is. And I mean, I think that it's important that we have these not fun conversations about it, you know? And I think it's especially important for you and I to talk about this because even if we're going to talk about like homicidal poisonings, it is important to be like, hey, when it's accessible like this, it's a problem for somebody who's struggling, you know? Yeah. And, and I think it's important for everybody out there to know that you shouldn't judge anyone for having suicidal ideation or attempting suicide. It's really easy to take it personally, but it's really not about you. It's really not. And, mm -hmm. and the other thing too, is that if somebody is struggling mm -hmm. and they're in a depressed episode or a depressed couple of years, cause mm -hmm. the hellscape that we all live in now, you know, like that's also not like, I'm going to go over to your house and take away your antifreeze and take away all the salt and take away all the Tylenol. Like mm -hmm. if somebody wants to hurt themselves, Mm -hmm. They will find a way. And so mm -hmm. doing those things is not going to make a situation any better, but it's something to keep in mind, mm -hmm. you yeah. know? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. It's more important to show that you genuinely care about them. Right. Right. And I mean, even Absolutely. If, you think, if you think someone's doing it for attention, I mean, it doesn't mean that dangerous behavior done for attention won't lead to serious permanent or fatal injury, you know? And mm -hmm. like, Maybe if they need attention that badly, give it to them, you yeah. know? Yeah. And give somebody yeah. a fucking hug. Yeah. Like, and it's not hard, guys, to send somebody a text message and say, hey, hi, how are ya? I, I don't think that a lot of people realize how much that can help somebody. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I get that, like, maybe if somebody is struggling and they've acted out in anger, it's easy to be like, I don't want to be the person and it's not on me. And it's it's not on anybody else to save anybody else. No. But like, just try to give them kindness, you know? Yes. Be a kind, compassionate human. Exactly. It goes a long way. For anybody out there who is thinking of them in their own life, like, ultimately it is your decision. Mm -hmm. And like, 
we don't support it, but we're not going to judge you for it. You know, we just hope that you get the help you need. Yeah. Cause I, we can never truly understand what somebody's struggle Mm -hmm. is. Yeah. So, I mean, that's your journey, but you know, check on your friends, Mm -hmm. check on your family, Mm -hmm. see how they're doing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you made a good point. Like don't rush to like get rid of their antifreeze because no, they'll find a way if, if that's what they ultimately want to do. Yeah. I mean, you can do that. You can make sure they don't have guns in the house. You can mm-hmm. make sure that they like when you're at a psychiatric hospital and they take away your shoelaces, they don't mm-hmm. let you have a belt. If somebody wants to do it, they're going to find a way. And so mm-hmm. just removing everything and that's just going to push a bigger a bigger space between you and your loved yeah. one, honestly. And I mean, I will say for anybody out there who, and I hope nobody is using these episodes to be like, oh, I know how to like get like rid of my husband. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, this show legal purposes is not a how to <laughs> poison people. Yeah. Right? Or yourself. Or yeah. yourself. This is and not a how to. Don't do that. Don't put that on us because we will be very unhappy. We, we will be sad at you. Yeah. We'll be sad at you. But if you are thinking and you are in that mindset and you're having ideation, I hope that I can push you away from thinking of antifreeze because it's super painful. Like poisoning yourself isn't just drinking something and going to sleep. It's not easy. It's not quiet. It's really painful. You'll probably end up puking on yourself. You might aspirate in your own vomit. You'll have headaches. It is really, really painful. And antifreeze takes a long time to kick in. So you will be suffering for a long time. Even if it's an hour, an hour to suffer until you die is a long time to do it. I don't recommend doing it. If that's like what your plan for your life is, I don't judge, but I don't recommend. And I mean, maybe if you ingest a lot, it could happen faster, but it's just going to be really painful while it's happening. You know, it's not going to be you drinking it and going to sleep. It's going to be a lot of suffering. And I think that we'll we'll end up talking about this with other poisons because it will just come up. Like with carbon monoxide, we'll talk about it. Mm, But everybody mm -hmm. thinks that carbon monoxide is just like running your car in the garage and going to sleep. And it is not. It's really painful. It's like you get headaches and there's vomiting again. Like it is really painful. So, you know, I just don't don't recommend it, you know? Yeah. Zero out of ten. Zero out of ten. We do not recommend. (laughs) No. (laughs) So the intentional poisonings mm-hmm. are one thing, mm-hmm. but do we know how many unintentional poisonings happen? So there were 45,097 cases of ethylene glycol exposures, right? Mm-hmm. And of those, 7,000 were intentional. Mm. So it's about, what, 38,000 that are unintentional mm. or in, in that you know time In that time frame, right. Yeah. That's quite a bit. So it sounds like accidental is mm-hmm. the big deal. Yes, for sure. And it, it it's because antifreeze tastes sweet. So ethylene glycol itself tastes sweet. And so it's very attractive to opportunistic animals and children who might get a hold of it or like a puddle on the ground. Even though the majority of people who are being exposed are over 20 years old, it's still sweet. So they want I mean, it's going to happen Yeah, with kids and animals. With kids and animals. And there are 17 states that now require bidding agents be added to antifreeze. Mm. 
But the report I read about exposures between 2006 and 2013 showed no improvement in exposures in states with this requirement. And in fact, they actually increased in these states for whatever reason. And the okay. amount swallowed didn't seem to vary between the states that had this and the states that didn't have it. And so there was no difference in the need for medical care or critical treatment either because there was still the same amount being swallowed, regardless of bittering agent. Yeah, so I mean, it begs the question, why even bother? Kind of, yeah. Obviously, it was, you know, good intentions. There, there are good, in- sure. But I don't know how averse animals find the bittering agent, so I don't know if there were fewer animal exposures, Mm. but I kind of don't think Mm -hmm. so, you know? I mean, I've had dogs chew on everything, and so we've tried to get that, like, bitter apple spray, and that didn't do a thing. So I, probably this bittering agent did do a thing for animals either. I also just wonder why in those 17 states, like... Mm -hmm. What are all the other states doing? Is it something that they just haven't thought of? I mean, I, this is just very yeah. hypothetical. I don't um, know. Rhetorical. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's like, okay, 17 states, but we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. But it, know, does, think, it seems like it doesn't fucking matter anyway. So. It, do, it doesn't matter. And I think there's some states <laughs> that are just like, don't tell me how to live. Don't tell us how to run industry. Or they're like, we have more important things happening. Like Alaska and Wisconsin have really high exposure rates. Let me look. Yeah, yeah. Thank Alaska and both the Dakotas. Alaska and both the Dakotas. I mean, these are all very cold places. Which, yeah, I mean. I don't know. But it's like, it's not just unintentional. I can't even imagine the situation, like, where this is happening. Why this makes sense, yeah. But I'm not an automotive person either, so that's not to say that, like, it's not, it's not a judgment on you. It's a judgment on me. Anyhow. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting, though. Yeah, it's weird. It's interesting. It's super weird, and I don't know why it's like that in those states. Who knows? Huh. Well... I think overall, we can all get behind people poisoning animals with antifreeze is 100% absolutely wrong. Yeah. I mean, I like animals usually more than people, but yeah, it's let's... also not okay to poison people. <laughs> That's wrong. Yeah. With animals and kids, do we know how many, do we know how many pets yes. are poisoned? Yeah. So I found a couple different numbers and none of them are good. Some of them are better, but none of them are surprise. So the number that I found that I I think I can repeat easily is 10,000 dogs and cats are poisoned every year by antifreeze. God, every year? Every year, but it could be upwards of that. Well, yeah, because maybe not everything's getting documented. Mm -hmm. There's stray Mm -hmm. cats that might be getting into it, that Mm -hmm. somebody doesn't want stray cats around their house anymore. Oh my God, that's so fucking sad. Yeah, and ethylene glycol poisoning is actually the most common form of pet poisoning in the United States. I would believe that. Mm -hmm. We actually had a cat who we think a neighbor poisoned with antifreeze. That's so sad. Yeah. I'm going to venture to guess of those 10,000 animals that are poisoned every year, I'm assuming that most of them don't survive. Would that be correct? I don't know. I didn't get a number on that. I didn't get a number on fatalities, but I mean, it's hard to say. I would imagine. I mean, they're they're so small. They are so small. Yeah, it takes very little to poison an animal. So if a dog ingests it, it takes as little as half a teaspoon per pound of body weight to be fatal. Yeah, if you have a mid-sized dog, dog, like a Labrador, that would just be over half a cup, right? So you'd have to give them a bowl. A a decent amount of it. A decent amount. 
But for like a Boston Terrier or a smaller dog, two and a half tablespoons, and that's fatal. That's right? crazy. And yeah. a single teaspoon can be fatal for a cat. I'm sure there's a lot of fatalities, especially with the smaller animals. Is there a chance of saving them? If you find your pet, mm -hmm. they're throwing up, you mm -hmm. know they're not okay. Yes. You pop them in the car and run to the emergency vet. Is there a chance of yes. survival? There is. There is. So dogs can be treated with good results within 8 to 12 hours of ingestion, which mm. is really good. Because That's they good. follow the same timeline that humans do. And so within mm. 8 to 12 hours, you would be experiencing, they would be experiencing rather, the, like, seizures. That's a pretty quick, like, got to go to the ER, you know? Right. That's a good um, sign of something's wrong. Yeah. They could also be experiencing vomiting that would be really easy to see. And then everything else would be really difficult to, to catch in a dog, you know, like tachycardia. You couldn't tell if they're having like heart palpitations, but True. they would be going through the same timeline as humans. Unfortunately, with cats, they have somewhat of a, a, tr a truncated timeline. So cats actually need to be treated within three hours. Oh, that's very narrow. Yeah, it's very narrow. And I think it's just because they're so small, you know. Right. And so they're, let me put on my big brain. The LD50 <laughs> for cats, or I guess, well, it's the LD50 is for 50% of the human population. So yeah. is there an LD cat? I LD mean, cat? yeah. See, that's what's silly about animal studies is that we established this LD50 in rats and then we're like, this probably applies to humans. And it's like, does it? If it's based on body weight, I guess you could say that you could apply it. If you were thinking about an eight to 12 pound cat, Mm -hmm. And you're thinking of an eight to 12 pound child or something. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to put my big brain on here. No, I mean, support yeah. Support me on this I journey. Do, I do support you. I do support you because like if you're doing it in body weight, then yes, the LD50 technically should be applicable. It'll have fatal onset quicker in cats than in okay. humans and in dogs. Yeah. Moving forward, can we, <laughs> on episodes where we talk about animals and how the poisons affect them, can we now have LD cat and LD dog? <laughs> we can talk about it like that. Sure. Okay, why not? Thank I'll try to find some poisons that are specific to dogs and then we can have an LD dog too. Okay, perfect. So, <laughs> okay, I took us down a journey, down a rabbit hole. What are the signs and symptoms of a poisoning for our animals that if we see them, we might think that there was an antifreeze poisoning, which could, I'm sure, help the vet mm -hmm. if we know that. Yes. Um, so what do we look for okay. in the animals? So again, same thing that you would look for in people. So you would look for your animal acting drunk, like maybe not able to stand, maybe acting really lethargic. If they end up with seizures, nausea, or vomiting, well, you can't experience nausea as a dog, if you if you see them vomiting. Oh, you know what, though? I learned with cats that they lick their lips when they're nauseous. Okay. Okay, so if your cat is, is like, licking their lips, that's one of the things that they do when they have an upset stomach. I don't okay. know about dogs. I'm a cat lady. <laughs> No, that's really good to know. So yeah, if they're if they are exhibiting nausea or vomiting, that's good. And then everything after that is a little bit harder to peg mm, down. So like really, the tachycardia. Yeah. So really, you just want to make sure that if they're falling down or if they're vomiting, if they end up with seizures or a coma, you just want to rush them straight to that emergency vet because they actually can end up with renal failure as well, which I know dogs are really susceptible to in the first place. And so if they end up getting those crystals built up, it's going to be hard to 
dial that back. Yeah. And again, it's it's really unfortunate that this can be so common with animals because, I mean, people are malicious, but also ethylene glycol is sweet, and so animals want to drink it. But it being sweet does also make it an interesting poison for people who are malicious towards other people, and they aren't putting it in something that you'll inject because... Oh, because you could put it in somebody's... We are not giving instructions on how to poison people. <laughs> but if you put it in somebody's tea or somebody's coffee, yeah, yeah, it's going to be sweet mm-hmm. instead of like you drink it and you go, what the fuck is this? And you spit it out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, mm. Yeah. So one of my okay. favorite authors, Deborah Blum, did a short piece on how easily antifreeze is used for lovers to poison one another the same year that Jamie Baker killed her husband. She oh, how <laughs> ironic. <laughs> Oh my God. So there were two doctors at Houston's MD Anderson Cancer Center who were romantically involved, and one of them decided to poison the other with a black cup of coffee sweetened with antifreeze. He actually did notice that his coffee did seem sweet despite being black, but drank enough that 16 hours later, he was in an emergency room and required dialysis for renal damage he was experiencing. Oh wow. So he took in quite a bit then. Yeah. And a cup of coffee. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, I just don't like to sit there and and just be watching somebody sipping on their cup of coffee and just sitting there. I picture a very like Mr. Burns moment. Like, (laughs) yes, excellent. Right? Excellent. Yeah. uh, So did he survive? He did. He did. And the assailing doctor was charged with aggravated assault, although she denied poisoning him at all. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a cop. (laughs) I'm not a judge, obviously. But, I mean, couldn't that, instead of aggravated assault, why didn't we go for the attempted murder charge? I don't know. In all seriousness, why go with aggravated assault? She didn't mean to make him sick. Mm -hmm. She wanted to kill him. Assault, to me, is like, I want to hurt you. Mm -hmm. I'm pissed off at you, but I don't want you dead. This is, I want you dead. I don't know. I'm not a doctor or a lawyer or anything either. I do watch the Legal Eagle YouTube. Have you ever seen that guy? Ooh, no, but I, oh, he's should so I check good. it out? Yes, okay. you should. Okay. Um, I, I think I heard it from him that like intent actually isn't as important as everybody makes it out to be. Because mm, it's hard to prove intent. Exactly. And so I think that it's kind of the outcome. And so mm-hmm. it was just aggravated assault, you know? I don't know. I mean, that makes sense. I, that makes sense. When you poison somebody and when there's ethylene glycol in their coffee, that seems like a murderous intent that, you know, maybe all they could get was aggravated assault because you can't prove intent. So I don't know. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. So she denied poisoning him. Mm -hmm. He survives. Mm -hmm. What happens next? Well, Blum also mentioned in her article, another woman who killed two husbands by lacing their jello with antifreeze. Oh, there we was, have a black widow on our hands. Uh, apparently. <laughs> there was a woman who killed her husband and then attempted to kill her stepdaughter with an antifreeze screwdriver cocktail. So it was a mixture of vodka, orange juice, Sprite, and antifreeze. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then there was a woman who killed her elderly neighbor with antifreeze spiked peach smoothie in order to get money. And a woman who what killed the- her fiance by adding antifreeze to his raspberry tea. So this seems pretty popular just because of how... Accessible. That sweetness. Yeah. 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 How, well, how accessible and how elusive yes, you can exactly. be with it. Mm-hmm. So what can people do if they realize they've been poisoned? Get to a doctor immediately. Get immediate medical attention. 
Treatment is most effective the sooner it is initiated. Typical treatment includes sodium bicarbonate and ethanol, and sodium bicarbonate is administered intravenously to avoid the blood becoming acidic, which is a major concern with okay. ethylene glycol poisoning. So you can't just pop a Tums and expect the same results. Mm. Like if people mm -hmm. are like, oh, sodium bicarbonate, I've got that. Not the same thing. No big deal. I'll save yeah. the hospital bill. Yeah. There's also a drug called fomipazole, which they okay. may give you because both ethanol and fomipazole are inhibitors of alcohol dehydrogenase, which means that they prevent the formation of the dangerous metabolites from ethylene glycol. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. And then you might need hemodialysis if you experience that severe acidosis of the blood or if renal failure has set in. And that's when the crystals start forming. We're not working as kidneys should be anymore. Yeah. yeah. And okay. so you need that dialysis to help your kidneys go. And then if the lungs are affected because the crystals can form in your lungs as well, you may need to have a breathing tube administered. So it is really important to just get immediate medical attention. Yeah. This don't try to deal can... with it at home. No, no. And... <laughs> Here's the interesting thing that, again, we should say, for legal reasons, <laughs> this is just interesting. <laughs> if you're out in the woods with your dog and some beers and you're working on a car, I don't know what situation you would be in that this happens, but you or your dog, let's say it's your dog, drinks a little bit of antifreeze and you're like, oh no, I'm so far away from a vet, what can I do in order to help my dog before mm -hmm. we get back to town? Mm -hmm. You can give your dog a little bit of beer because the ethanol, <laughs> the ethanol can help them inhibit the alcohol dehydrogenase from forming so that you can get them to medical assistance. So I'm not saying just willy-nilly let your dogs drink give beer, your dog beer, but as a last case survival type thing, you can give somebody who is experiencing ethylene glycol huh. poisoning ethanol and that will help reduce the symptoms at least for a short period of time right because i mean a lot of people don't live in rural areas like you said go camping they're not mm -hmm. going to be able to like oh, i gotta go jump over to like me i live two blocks away from a hospital right like not everybody is like that so if you're in one of those a little bit of beer yeah a little bit of beer will do the body good okay <laughs> good to know good to know what about, are there any alternatives to antifreeze that people could use that aren't so toxic and readily available? Or are we just stuck with the antifreeze that has this bittering agent that really doesn't do a damn thing? We're not just stuck with that. There is antifreeze that's made with propylene glycol rather than ethylene glycol, and it's considered totally non-toxic. Oh. Yeah, this is the kind of antifreeze that's used in the manufacture of food, cosmetics, and personal care products. So you can have it just like whizzing around the factory. And if there's a leak, it won't kill anybody, right? So because of this increased safety, propylene glycol is actually sometimes used as an alternative, sorry, as an additive to keep products moist, like cosmetics. So sometimes it oh. actually is in, the, in cosmetics as a humectant. Okay. It can be used as a preservative and it's a component in artificial fog. Oh, Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so totally non-toxic. Yeah, because, I mean, as a theater kid and as a techie, <laughs> I have inhaled a, a lot of fog machine. Yeah. So that's great to hear that's not toxic. Well, then if that's so safe, then why not just make the switch mm -hmm. from the ethylene glycol to the propylene glycol? Yeah. So antifreeze capabilities are actually better with ethylene glycol, and so you can use less ethylene glycol than propylene glycol to achieve the same results. 
Ethylene glycol has a lower viscosity, so it can be exploited for heat transfer properties because Mm -hmm. of the viscosity. But, I mean, consumers like you and me, we're not going to really notice a difference like that. You and I could easily switch to propylene glycol because we're not using it for industrial purposes. Right. We don't need it to be top-notch. Exactly. Even some businesses, like transportation and things like that, they could at least limit the amount of ethylene glycol they use. I feel like, for the most part, we could really decrease the incidental, especially animal poisonings. We could decrease those. We could decrease workplace unintentional exposures. Sure. If more people switch to propylene glycol, and I think a lot of people can, at least regular people, you know, next time you need antifreeze, go ahead and look for that propylene glycol. No, that's what I'm going to (laughs) do. I mean, yeah, no, because I'm a little Disney princess and I have bunnies and I have squirrels and then I have my cats. I have all these animals and I don't need them dying on me. No. I don't need them dying on me. So I'll make the switch. Nice. I'll make the switch. (laughs) Right. Is there anything else that you have to add? This has been a wealth of knowledge per use. Uh, Thank you. No, I think that's basically everything I wanted to say about ethylene glycol. You know, stay safe. Know how many people are poisoned. Try to avoid it. And if your black coffee is suspiciously sweet and you've pissed someone off recently. Think twice. Yeah. Maybe be wary. Yeah. (laughs) No, I love it. What an interesting case to bring with James Baker, instead of, you know, we put the coffee or we put it in the tea. This was like a different, really unique case like that. We're injecting that shit. We are going mainline. Uh, We are mainline and antifreeze. Oh, it bothers me so much. Like needles and skin bother me, but injecting antifreeze, it's just like, ah, yeah. Is this a Saw movie? Yeah, exactly. Well, and I just can't get out of my head. Like I, I, the, the weirdo in me wants to get online and like look up pictures of what the crystals in those kidneys look like, just because I love shit like that. Um, and maybe we could make, well, I don't know if that's too gore for social media, but I'd be really interested in seeing what that looks like, honestly. Yeah, I don't think it would probably be super gory because I think it's, you you give it to histology and then you can see it in histology. So it wouldn't even look like a... Like a kidney, bloody and gross. It would just be pink. So we can totally put that on, on social media. Yeah, I'd really be interested to see that. So yeah, that was a really interesting case to bring. And it's crazy how common this is, especially for suicide. So again... Mm-hmm. If you're struggling, if you have a friend that's struggling, check on them, check Mm -hmm. on yourself. There are resources. Hit us up on social media. I'm like, seriously, if you need a friend to say hi to, I'm on TikTok all the time. (laughs) Hit me up. Yeah, no, this is, this was a really, really interesting episode. I always learn so much. And then I also leave feeling I I leave the episodes feeling so much smarter than when I came in, but almost equal parts terrified. Excellent. Excellent. If everybody feels that way, then I think we're really hitting the nail on the head with with what we're doing here. Deal. I love it. I love it. Thank you again, Kayla. Always, always a pleasure. Thanks for sharing your big old brain. No problem. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. 
The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. Stay safe, and remember, the dose makes the poison. Thank you.